Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. To say that 2020 has been riddled with challenges is to to be the biggest understatement of the year. However, every challenge we face can present opportunities that we didn't even know existed. I know that certainly in our C-suite network, as we looked at that March 13th date, and by the 16th of March, we said, look, we're going to drive and thrive. We're going to run into the fire. We're all going to be business first responders because, hey, most of us can't even sew a mask. But what we've been doing is being able to capitalize on those opportunities and be completely unapologetic about driving success for ourselves and our businesses. It's important. I know a lot of people out there aren't doing as well, but there are many that are doing well. And there's nothing wrong with that because we all have to do our part and do it in the best way possible. Now, my first guest today is Shelly Archambault. She's the board member for Verizon. She's an experienced CEO and a board of directors with an impressive track record of building brands, high performance teams and organizations. And I've gotten to know Shelly over the last year. She and I were about a year and a half ago, I think it was the first time we met. We were on stage judging uh, some some entrepreneurs with the shark shark event uh, that we were doing with all the guys from Shark Tank, and it was just great to it, it sit next to her and like, oh my gosh, you're Shelly. Well, welcome, Shelly. It's good to have you here. Well, thanks so much, Jeffrey. It's great to be here. You know, that was one of those experiences where we're both sitting next to each other. Neither neither one of us knew each other, and then by the end of the thing, we go, we've got to get together more often. You know, absolutely. We could almost finish each other's feedback as we were talking to the different entrepreneurs. It was really funny. It was fun. Yeah. And you and I were coming from a different perspective because of the panel, we were the only ones that had any real corporate experience. A lot of the others were good entrepreneurs, nothing wrong with that, but from a scale. Let me ask you a question. You were one of the first African-American tech CEOs in Silicon Valley. I mean, one of the first, which even says something. I mean, that in itself. But walk me through your journey to this mecca of male-dominated executives. (laughs) Well, you know, Jeffrey, I actually decided early in life that I wanted to be a CEO. And not Uh because I knew what that even meant. High school. That's right. High school. High school. Good memory. That's right. I decided in high school after a fateful conversation with a guidance counselor who was like, what do you want to do when you graduate from college? And I'm like, I don't know. She goes, what do you like to do? I said, I love running clubs, right? American Field Service, National Honor Society, whatever. She said, oh, well, business is kind of like clubs. And I said, done. And I decided then I'll run a business. (laughs) But I had no idea what that actually meant. But it became my goal. And so literally, I spent my career being trying to be very intentional, paying attention to who are the CEOs? What do they do? What were the backgrounds, experience? What jobs did they take, right? All those kinds of things. And then mapped out a plan for myself and basically really stuck to it. So went after the PL jobs, went after the international experiences, right? Went after all these things and I didn't shy away from risk. And so the combination, you know, after being with IBM for 14 years and becoming the highest There was no African-American female higher than me in the company. I was running multi-billion dollar divisions and my boss was Lou Gerstner. My boss's boss was Lou Gerstner, the CEO. That's a big name. Yeah, I'd done well. But I'm like, is it really going to happen here? I've done big. And I worked my way to Silicon Valley, where after being chief marketing officer and VP of sales at a couple of public companies, I indeed got the opportunity to be CEO of what became Metricstream. It was pretty broken at the time. 
but yeah. we managed to turn that around. Yeah, that was a broken company. Let me ask you in that in that uh, process, was everything fair? <laughs> no, no. As a matter of fact, it's so funny that you asked me that, Jeffrey, because that's one thing that my mother literally drummed into me growing up. You know, something happens to you as a kid and you come home, you say, mom, it's not fair, right? I didn't get this or this happened, all that stuff. And instead of giving me the hug and pat on the back, oh, maybe next time, right? Mom would basically look at me and say, you're right. Life's not fair. Yeah. It's like, what? So, you know, therefore I never looked for fairness. I always look to say, okay, I know the odds aren't in my favor. So what can I do to improve the odds for me to get what I want, to make something happen, to turn around a company, right? To build a business. It was always, how do I improve the odds? And then trying to execute against those things to improve the odds, to actually make things happen. Well, even doing it at the level you're doing, you know, listen, as a white male, I have a probably a step up because of the way that it's been done for many years. Right. But at the same time, I would tell you, listen, I don't have the pedigree. I don't have the education. I don't come from the 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 big states, you know, being from South Dakota, so to speak. There's a lot of things that, that go against me in that. And it was tough fighting, but, you know, it was worth it. Was it worth it for you? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I have, you know, as I said, I had no idea what it really meant when I decided I wanted to be a CEO, yeah. but I, I absolutely enjoyed it. I enjoyed the impact. I enjoyed developing people, right? Creating new leaders, solving problems. All, I mean, all those things. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. You know, loved you're, it. Given that role as CEO or you're in the C-suite, which both of which you've done, there was a couple of times when, you know, back in my Kodak days, I'd be sitting there going, Hey, this place is messed up. Somebody should do something about it. And then I'm sitting in that meeting. I'm realize, Hey, that's me. I'm the one that needs it. Did you have those moments too, where you just real looked around and going, why isn't someone doing something, but it's really, it's, I've got to do that. Listen, absolutely. I'll never forget. I was actually at IBM at the time and um, I wasn't quite an executive yet. So I was like one level below the exec. And we had been working on getting this new investment for a new project that we were trying to do off for our team. And our boss had told us that, hey, he's already greased his kids. It's going to happen. So we're like ready to go. Well, he comes back from a budget meeting and says, we didn't get the money. Yeah. And it's like, what? We just spent months on this and we didn't get the money. And he's all upset and he's blaming his boss and he's all down mouth and everybody's getting all depressed. And I'm like, hey, you know, we have a whole team of people out there and we've got to figure out how we continue to do things. We can't walk out of there saying we failed. So I'm like, listen, right? We still have the money we had. We didn't get an increase, but we didn't get a cut. So let's figure out what we're going to go do. And eventually my boss got on board and started taking the lead again. But it was the same thing. I'm like, I'm not sitting here while everybody acts like, you know, the world's ending. It's yeah. not. Let's figure out how we solve this problem so we can walk out of here with a plan. <laughs> but yes. Well, yeah. I, I mean, what's unique about that when I look at that and I hear that is I would have said, well, they didn't cut our budget. We right. still have our budget. It's now it's about priorities. What do we have to do to change the things we need to do to get where we need to go? Exactly right. Exactly right. But there are a lot of times when not everybody has that same sense of leadership. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't. It's funny. I tell people all the time. A, le a title does not make you a leader. You know, other people make you a leader. If they follow you, if they listen to you, right? If they look to you for direction, then you're a leader. So anybody can be a leader. You don't need a title. So I, I have a question. You said you were right below the executives. Mm -hmm. Inside of a company like that, I want people to hear how many executives. How many executives were there in the company? Oh, my gosh. That's a good point. I, you know what? Oh, 
Let's see. I know it was well over well over a thousand. Oh yeah, well over a thousand because the top three hundred, right? We're a we're a group in terms of meetings. So yes, definitely well over a thousand. I, I think it's interesting for people to know because at Kodak, I remember at one time we had seventeen hundred executives. You know, and and I'm going, are you nuts? Are you kidding me? That's a lot of people. And so when you think about it. Um, that that you had, you were just below that, and I'm, I'm going to guarantee it. There, you guys were three or four thousand. I bet. Oh you. yeah, Pretty close to it. I, I, I'm kind of curious as a board member because I'm going through this uh, right now as board member on, on various companies. W- what has been your biggest challenge in those roles? Oh my goodness, honestly, it was COVID. <laughs> really? Why? Well, here's what happened. We had I'm I sit on four public boards. And I used to tell people I can handle four because only one typically blows up at a time, right? Maybe two, but and all of a sudden COVID hit and they're all blowing up. And literally for a month, I was like every day. I mean, every board was meeting, you know, weekly, if not multiple times during the week. And then you had the side conversations and you had, I mean, so when you talk about challenge, it was all about time, priority, bandwidth, making sure you're helping people figure out what's going on. And nobody had been down this road. So it wasn't like there was anyone to call to say, hey, what did you do when this happened? Right. We're all figuring it out at the same time. So the COVID March, April. Yeah. Yeah. Which is better being being in the driver's seat as a C-suite executive or being on the board? Oh, my gosh. They're so different. It's hard. They to are. See. Yeah. It's really hard to say better. I mean, when I was sitting in, in the seat, I enjoyed being CEO and I liked being able to, to make things happen. Um, but I passed that baton and I enjoy sitting on the board, but it is different. If you still want to keep your hands in things, if you still want to actually be the one to push the buttons, right, to make the calls the whole bit, you still need to be in that operating executive role. The role as a board is much more, as you know, yes, it's the governance, it's the counseling, it's the coaching, advising, right? It's the help, it's all those things. But at the end of the day, you're not the one actually making it happen. You do provide a lot more counsel than when you're in that leadership role as a C-level executive. And then, But I think those decisions take on a different role. I, I think I've become more contemplative in terms of the, 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 the weight that's on your shoulder as a board member to do the right things and to make sure you're giving leadership that. And so I think that's a big one. Yeah. I also think the the perspective that you bring sitting on the board is much broader. Yeah. You know, as the company, you're you're narrowly focused on your market, your company, yeah. but being on a board and multiple boards, you bring that whole industry of what's happening, right? And trying to make sure that as trade-offs and decisions are being made, that the entire set of stakeholders, right, are being considered. Well, what most people maybe on this call might not know is that also when you sign off on those things, there's there's a great deal of responsibility legally as a board member than ever before, you know, after Sarbanes-Oxley. So let me ask another question. I want to get into the strategic side, because I've heard you say that you have to be strategic about what you're doing. So what was your strategy to get into the C-suite and what advice uh, for others trying to get in there as well? So the way I do it, Jeffrey, is I ask myself, okay, what is it I'm trying to achieve? So here I am in college, I'm at work and I want to be a CEO. So I say, all right, what has to be true? So I look, who are the CEOs and what have they done? And I want to go into tech. Well, at the time, IBM was frankly the behemoth in tech. Uh, This was talking back in the 80s. So I said, all right, I'll go be CEO of IBM. So I did the research. Because the key is their paths already out there. No yeah. reason to guess, right? Well, it turned out they all started out in sales. So I said, you know what? I got to start out in sales. 
And it uh, wasn't because I suddenly love sales. It was just, this is obviously the skill set, right? And the path to power. So this is what I do. So the key is really figuring out what's required. I ask myself, I want to be CEO. What has to be true? And then how do I make it true? You think so, that's the case that you think you can still do that? I, you think uh, in a publicly traded company from sales to CEO? I mean, oh, I think, oh, I think you absolutely can do that. Really? I think there are multiple ways and roles in terms of getting to things. But yes, if you look at it, and heck, whether no matter what size company, um, by starting out in sales, you start out right in the beginning on understanding how money comes into the company, right? Nothing happens until somebody sells something. Now, it doesn't mean your sales all the way up. I think you could start out in sales, but you need to get broader experiences. You got to get general management. You got to, I mean, you've got to build a breadth. But I personally think a sales experience to start is great no matter what you want to do, because all the skills you learn in sales, you can leverage in any job and leverage personally because you learn how to handle a no. You learn how to qualify. You learn how to negotiate. You learn how to communicate effectively. You learn how to read a room. You learn. I mean, I could go on and on and on. Sales teaches you so much that you can leverage across the spectrum of jobs. C-Suite Radio. In your book, Unapologetically Ambitious, which is no doubt that I can see that that's a core of who you are, right? <laughs> and I mean, you consider yourself a very ambitious person. I think that, that I think your name would be right next to that definition, okay? <laughs> so what do you tell others who see or think that being ambitious is not a good quality to have? Because I got to imagine... I'm, I'm, I'm ambitious. You're ambitious. I got to imagine that I know that many people call me like a Mack truck sometimes like I'm driving and I got to imagine they used a different word with you from time to time, <laughs> which we know what that word would be. Not, not that you're in any way, shape. I mean, you're one of the nicest people I've ever seen and fairest people. I, I mean, I just, I see this in you and I've talked to you so many times, but I would think some people think ambitious is not a good quality. How, what do you tell people about that? Yeah. So first of all, the reason I titled a book that is because everyone's to be, everyone deserves to be ambitious and nobody should have to apologize for it. Now, ambitious doesn't have to be in your face, right? Ambitious just means you have something you're trying to accomplish, something that you aspire to, or something that you're trying to impact, right? And that, so that's an ambition. Now, being ambitious is fine, but you don't have to slap people around, right? To prove that you're ambitious. And when it comes to being a woman or a person of color, yeah, we have to be more careful on how we show our ambition, but we should still be ambitious, still set goals, still go after them, still let people know what it is that we want to achieve. Yeah. By the way, I want to just say that's, I, I think that's bullshit that you have to, I get it. I understand it. I think it's totally wrong. And we got to keep Life's going. not fair. Life yeah. is not Life's fair. Life's not fair. That's right. As, as I've, I've been saying to some of my team, hey, buckle up, buttercup. That's just the way it works <laughs> right now. That's you know, that's what we got to do. I read in your book also that about the imposter syndrome. I love that. Can you explain that to our audience? Oh, definitely. So that imposter syndrome, it's that little voice, that little voice that comes in your head when you get a new job opportunity, or um, you're being asked to speak or asked to represent or anything time when you're doing something new, right, that you haven't done before. And that little voice starts to say, you're not as smart as they think you are. What makes you think you're going to be able to handle this, right? It's that little voice that is basically tearing you down. That's reminding you of all of your failures of why you can't do things, right? So here's the deal. I did a little research when I was doing the book, Jeffrey, and it turns out most people suffer from imposter syndrome at some point or other. 
we all women, do. yep, women more than men, but people mm. of color, women of color the most. Mm. So what does that say? It says it's in the air. It's not you, it's not personal. So when you hear that voice, it's like TV. Sounds real, looks real, feels real, not real, okay? It's not real. So you have to learn how to deal with it and overcome it because frankly, I've been dealing with it my entire life. So don't let it stop you. Don't let it stop you. When people offer you opportunities, they obviously believe you can do it. Believe them if you can't believe in yourself, right? Let and if you, you Let me yeah. ask you that, because I, I was with a group of celebrities and they were asking me how to market themselves because of the stuff that we do inside the C-Suite Network and building a brand of yourself. And, and, and one of them asked me, said, Jeff, what do you do when you hear that little voice in your head? And I said, what voice? And they said, well, that voice. And I, this is the imposter syndrome. I said, listen, brother, I stopped listening to those voices a long time ago. Right. And, you know, I just I've been able to drown them out or just say, no, I am who I am, what I am and how I am. And I'm going to do it with greatest swagger that I, I can muster to get it done. That doesn't mean I don't have the doubts. I don't have those things. So what is it that you do that you you specifically when that comes into your head that says, hey, you, you're not the right person for this. Or you can't do it. Do you understand? Or maybe you're in a boardroom in Verizon, because I know some of those people. And, and, and you, you're like, that, that person's so vo- voice, boisterous and, and, and forceful that you go like, oh, do I know who I'm sitting across from? You know, you know, like that. What do you do in that moment? So two things. One, when I start to hear that little voice, now I know it's like, okay, you know, turn it off, ignore it, get over it, right? I can tell tell myself that. But before, honestly, what do I do? I fake it. I fake it when I'm not feeling confident or I'm like, oh, I'm not sure. I'm like, listen, right? (sighs) Fake it till you make it. Put your shoulders back, you take a deep breath and you act like you know what you're doing because eventually you will. You always figure it out. You always figure it out. So instead of you know, leaning back to, oh, maybe I shouldn't ask the question, make the point, participate, whatever. No, no, no. You've got to talk yourself, right, into being able to just act like you know what you're doing. Create the confidence. And the other thing I tell people is, listen, if you can't do it yourself, then go get a cheerleader. Get somebody literally that's in your corner that you can call up and say, oh my God, I just got this opportunity. I don't know. And they're the ones to say, Shelly, you can do this. Look at all you've done. They remind you of your capabilities because when this voice is making all that noise, you can't remember a thing. It just drowns out all the positives. How many times have you teamed up with somebody? You said, get a coach, get somebody, get somebody a cheerleader. How many times have you teamed up with somebody in the C-suite to get this done or move this or do this or with the book or with other things where you've partnered with someone? Yeah, I honestly, I do it a lot. You know, people think asking for help is a sign of weakness. I believe it's a sign of strength. It means you know what you know and you know what you don't. And so you go out and find people that can help you who have been there, done that. Because the good news is, Jeff, almost anything you try to do, somebody's done in some shape, form, industry, whatever. So go find them, learn from them. And it turns out that if you ask in the right way, most people actually want to be helpful. So you'll get the help. Well, speaking of being a really successful executive, and you certainly are one, I'm sure you've handled some pretty complex negotiations from time to time. What's been one of the toughest ones you've had to handle? Ah, okay. So, gosh, a a couple. Probably the hardest one was uh, when I was building MetricStream. So I take over this company. It's very broken. They had raised a hundred million dollars during the bubble of 1998, 99. Wow. 
hundred million. And when I got there, you know, it was less than 10. I mean, yeah, so I was going to say, that's the time period for those that are listening and watching for you, especially younger folks. I, I, we used to watch this. Remember the Shelly? Somebody would raise a hundred million and then they would throw a party. Yes. Spend $10 million and bring in this country Western band or rock or pink or someone to play and blow 10 million of the money that they just raised. I mean, they would do stupid stuff like that, right? Oh, it's not, it was unbelievable. The times were just so different. People were judged on how fast they could spend their money. I mean, it's just, anyway, it's just bizarre. But so here's what happened. I had a cap table as long as your arm, right? Because when you raise that kind of money, everybody's invested. It's cap table. Those are all the investors. Well, in order for me to restructure this company, I've got to get bylaws were 75% to agree. Well, most people had not written down the value on this company. And all of a sudden, I've got to get them to agree to restructure, which means they've got to take the loss. It's a paper loss, but they still got to take the loss. People don't want to take losses. <laughs> so that was the toughest. I had a spreadsheet with 12 different ways I could get 75% to agree. Anyway, we, I got it done. But let me tell you, it was the hardest nego- set of negotiations you I've had. To, do that, to make people realize I've been in that same situation was a, as a stockholder in the company, and I own more than the founder of the company. And I had to go to the other uh, other shareholders and saying, look, we don't want to be in the position of owning more of the company than the founder because the incentive is gone. So we, so I made everybody, and because I was the biggest shareholder, do a write-down. I said, we're all doing a write-down. That's the name of the game. That's how we're going to do this. That's the only way. And we ended up selling the company to Twitter. But that's what you have to be able to do and 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 to get people to see the end, end result. So I've noticed that people always ask women, Okay. Now, don't think it's coming from me, but I, I watch them ask this question and they don't ask men this question. The work-life balance, right? Yes. First of all, that's a stupid, unfair question because I've never known anyone to have a work-life balance, period. None, zero, not, nada. Okay. So what is your approach? to this right. work-life balance? Well, first of all, I hate the term work-life balance. Yeah. Because, I mean, what is a balance? A balance is a static structure where you have two weights that are even at all times. Whose life is static? Right now, life goes like this and around corners and turns bends and I'm suddenly going to be judged as to whether or not I'm holding things in balance. That's crazy. I mean, to me, it's all about work-life integration. Yes, I wear a lot of hats. You wear a lot of hats, but you know what? One head. One head, personal priorities, professional priorities. I put them together and reprioritize ruthlessly. And I get done what I have to get done. And what that means, something's not going to get done. I either have to find somebody else to do it or live with the fact that it's not getting done. But this whole notion of being judged on whether or not, oh, I spent two hours here. So let me spend two hours here. So let me spend one. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Absolutely crazy. We have enough pressure. Life is hard enough without all false, if you will, um, ways in which people want to judge us. I'm sitting here thinking about balance. Remember when the kid, we had this teeter-totter and on the teeter-totter oh, yeah. would be one-sided. You know, if you balanced it out, it's not fun. You got to right. have one way or the other. <laughs> it's a lot more fun than that. Okay, that's my two cents. All right, I, one last question because I want to get to the q and I want to get people to be able to ask questions because we have such great, smart people in the C-suite network. The title of your book has Create Success on Your Own Terms. What's your conditions of satisfaction for success or your mm-hmm. terms? 
Yeah, thanks for asking. So what that really meant was everybody should just define for themselves what success is. Don't worry about what the world thinks or what anybody else thinks. You decide what success is and you go after that. Uh, For me, I wanted to be CEO, yes, but I also wanted a long-term marriage. I wanted kids and I wanted to make an impact right outside of my traditional business world. Those were the things that were I was going to use to judge myself on whether or not I was living a successful life. So de- decide for yourself what is successful. You know, I tell people all the time, my mother is probably one of the most ambitious people I know because ambition isn't tied to title. To me, ambition is all about whether or not you have aspirations, things you want to accomplish, things you want to impact. She never worked outside of the home after she got married. Mm. Yet she was very ambitious. And you know what? She accomplished everything she set out to accomplish. So decide for yourself what success is and then go after it wholeheartedly. I'm going to go back on my word. I said that was my last question. But <laughs> so you, you, you talk, you've mentioned your mother twice in this conversation. Do you, do you identify more with your mother than your father? My mother was a stay-at-home mom. Mm-hmm. So I, therefore I saw and spent more time with my mother than with my father. So with regards to the, I'll call it the key lessons. It was my mother that was there every day, right. To really drive. Here are the lessons. Um, dad was, they were, the good news is they were on the same page. So dad was totally there, you know, and around two, but in terms of, I'll call it the foundational belief system. I would say my mother had more impact on that. What did your dad do? So my dad fixed, he started out his career fixing typewriters. Daddy didn't have a college degree. Um, And so he took himself from fixing typewriters to ultimately becoming a a manager um, of a field operations with other people who actually did that. That's fantastic. Did I'm just curious now, did your mom, was your mom such an equal that she never had to say, wait till your dad gets home? Oh, Um, no. If if she said, wait till dad gets home, that meant we were getting a spanking. Yeah. Okay. But no, they were, mom ran the household. You know, daddy used to say he brings home his little bit of change and mom turns it into a life. Uh, So they had a great great partnership. What a great saying. I've never heard of that. That's a great saying. That's a tweetable moment right there, my friend. That's awesome. Be able to say, by the way, I just want you to know, my mother never said, wait till dad gets home. She took care of business right there. (laughs) Hey, listen, Shelly, what a pleasure to have you. I can't wait to have you back again. I've, of course, had you on the uh, podcast before, and uh, you've been part of Bestseller TV, and we're so so happy uh, to see the success of the book. Named, by the way, for those who don't know, this just out, one of the top 50 business books by Fortune. Uh, You want to rush out and get this book if you don't already have it. C-Suite Radio. Hey, Tricia, Greg, let me turn it over to you. Let's get some of those questions. Thank you so much, Jeff and Shelley. This has just been incredible. And we have, as always, phenomenal questions. So Alan Brenton is one of our leaders, Shelley, and he says, uh, what was your biggest challenge in bringing a new development to market? And what specifically was the obstacle to success? Oh my gosh. So when we were recreating, if you will, uh, fixing metric stream, we had to come up with a brand new value proposition because what they were selling, nobody wanted. So the biggest obstacle was figuring out what is a problem that we can solve better than other people that companies are willing to pay significant dollars for. By the way, post um, dot-com crash when people aren't spending any money. So that was the biggest challenge. And how did we do it? I literally, you know, I went out and spoke to some of the smartest people I knew. And I didn't say, what should I do? I said, tell me about a big problem. Tell me about big problems that you're dealing with and that companies are having. And from that 
came upon compliance and risk management. And we got into compliance and risk management before it was actually a big area of focus. So fortunately, the market ended up coming to us, which was great. What a great example of what we need to be doing today. You know, what are the challenges that are now there that we can be solving for? Greg, over to you. You were talking about the post.com uh, crash. Let's talk a little bit about the post-COVID. And this is a question from Kathleen Caldwell. She says, what counsel and guidance would you give to women about how to capitalize on the post-COVID opportunities? Well, I will tell you, whenever times are going through this kind of transition and challenge, disruption, all that, right? Nothing is normal right now. Nothing, not home, not work, not religion, not nothing. Politics, geography, nothing is normal. It's a perfect time to try something new. People take more risks during times of disruption. And taking a risk means just doing something new, doing something different. So if you've got an idea for a business, you've got an idea and a problem that you can solve, if you've been thinking about getting something started, now is actually a great time to start because people are more open to trying something new. I love that. Now, you were talking about the negative talk, you know, the self-negative talk. And Susan Chambers asked the question about what is the pre-work you would do? Because there's there's that moment. There's the moment of crisis or, you know, personal crisis. But but what is the prep that you, that you think we should be focused on uh, in the in-between? Build the skills. Work on the skills that you feel that you need. You know, let me give you a great example. When I started out at IBM and here I joined and looking around and watching the executives and they were all good speakers. They could all communicate effectively, seem comfortable up on stage. Heck, at the time, I was not at all. And I'm like, man, how am I going to be CEO if I can't even become an executive because I can't actually do this? So I joined Toastmasters. I literally started working on it. I practiced, I did speeches, I did what, right? Well, I've done that my whole career. You look to say, what skills? What skills do people have? in the roles that I'm trying to get. And let me start building them now. So when I need them, right, they're there, they're good, and they're solid. And they're solid. So the prep work is just being intentional. And that's the whole thing about planning. Decide what you want, figure out what you need to do to go get it, and then be intentional about getting it and building the skills and capabilities required. Okay. All right, Chris Westfall has a question about satisfaction. So when you achieve one of your great ambitions, you know, what do you do then? Do you ever say, this is enough. Look at me. I've reached the top of Everest. How great am I? Or do you say, you know, what could be even better than this? <laughs> Honestly, the answer is no, I never stop. You know, people say, when are you going to retire? I'm like, I don't actually ever plan to retire. If retirement means doing, frankly, what my parents have done, um, which is they're retired, they're not working anymore. They're like, no, that's not me. <laughs> so I always want to be learning. I'm a, you know, I'm just a big learner. I want experiences. I want to try and see different new things. So after the CEO role, I'd plan for a phase two like now, which is serving on boards, advising companies, right? I do some investing. I coach CEOs. I all kinds of things. Well, is there something new? Of course. I'm trying to figure out now, hmm, after doing the book, a lot of people want career advice, want mentoring advice, want et cetera. Well, you know what? I'm trying to figure out how to do that at scale. Um, you know, what are ways, because I'm only one person with so many hours Are there ways to do something at scale. So I'm going to see if there's something to do there. So no, I'll always be out there trying to figure out how to solve the next problem, make an impact, you know, cause that way I learn. I always think it's like playing with a Rubik's cube. 
right, Shelley? It's just constant. You know, you get one side, that's only one side. Now you want two and three and so on. Um, Nate Kiefman's one of our hero leaders. And he says, um, he has, he's just got a great question. What advice would you give to a small, innovative, young company or startup that would like to partner or leverage the resources in relationship with a larger company like a Verizon and others? Um, how would you recommend they go about establishing that relationship? Mm. Um, take a step in between. So it's really hard. Big companies are risk adverse, right? Underscore exclamation point, bold letters, risk averse. And the reason they're risk averse is they have the most to lose. People sue them, things happen, right? So don't go from small company to, I want to partner with Verizon. Verizon is a fortune 20 company. Um, no, go after a company that's bigger than you that can help, but one not quite as big. It has less to lose. They'll be more likely to take risk, especially if you can partner away, which helps them expand their market, expand their reach. You need win-win and then work your way up. Trust me, if you spent that much time going after somebody really big, which, oh, by the way, is a much longer sell cycle, right? It's years to make things happen. You can get multiple done at a smaller level that will have bigger impact on your business than something else. And then when you're ready to go to Verizon because you've had success, they see a lower risk. Now you've got even more to build on and you'll frankly get a better return. Jeff just put together a speech recently that's phenomenal. And it's why $2,500 sale is better than a $2.5 million sale. And you there just you summarized the reason. <laughs> yep. Greg, over to you. Robert Olson has a college student daughter preparing her career and job plans as she finishes school. What advice would you give her in getting her professional life going with success and fulfillment? Have her read my book. <laughs> yeah, the biggest thing is just have her have her figure, pick up a goal, pick something she wants to go do. You know, and people say to kids all the time, do what you love. And I think that's terrible advice. How do you know at the age of 18, 20, what you love? Right. So what happens is kids get all tied up in knots. Oh my God, I got to figure out what I love. I don't know what I love. And, and then they can't decide. No, just pick something. Pick something. And ideally, if you don't know what you want to do, pick something in demand. Because then you're at least building a skill set that even if you decide that's not the uh, that's not the industry or the company, you can leverage the skill because it's in demand and parlay it to something else. So don't get yourself tied up in knots thinking you have to know the future and everything right now. Right. Just get out there. Try something, build some skills. You might learn you like this. If you don't, pivot. You have plenty of years to work and try, but move forward. Dawn Kirk is one of our leaders in our thought council. And she, the, the two of you would be peas in a pod in terms of how you would get along. Um, she, she just says, congratulations on your accomplishments. She's so excited about what you've managed to do in your story. And then asks, how did you pave the way to create more opportunities for people of color in the tech space? And what were the challenges you faced in doing so? Oh my goodness. So a couple things. One, for somebody who's trying to build a company, I spent quite a bit of time trying to be visible, right? Speaking, talking, coaching, mentoring, all, all of those things um, as a way to help. I've been very active in trying to help with diversity, whether it's on boards, right? Or it's helping people find folks in terms of leadership, et cetera, and talking about things and asking people to be accountable and participate. <coughs> I'm involved in a number of organizations that focus on this as well, from ITSMF to C200, et cetera. So I, I definitely try to pay it forward. Mm -hmm. 
Doris Young Boyer says, Shelly, how do you define conflict and what is your approach to resolving conflict? Interesting. So conflict is when two people have different views of what should happen, right? And the way I deal with conflict is I call it the peel the onion strategy. I'm in the same company, right? And we don't, we think there are two different ways to get something done. I ask questions to understand why. <coughs> Pardon me, allergies. Why do you think this is the right approach? What are the assumptions, right? Peel the onion, peel the onion. And you do that until you get to a point where you do agree. Because if you ultimately have the same objective in mind, grow revenue, expand the business, whatever it might be, there will be a point where you both agree, where you both agree. So you peel it to that point and then you build it back up again. So I called it peel the onion because many times the issue with a conflict is you actually just had misunderstanding on assumptions. That. That leads perfectly into another question that we had. Um, and, and really, as we look at uh, conflict, uh, how we adapt our cultures, um, Rich Bontrager, one of our leaders and podcasters and TV hosts, um, and also um, Dennis, I know had some questions along these lines, Tom Simmons, what do we do to adapt that culture post-COVID? Uh, what are your top recommendations for that now? Oh, goodness. In terms of adapting culture, it's a couple things. One, culture is impacted significantly by leaders. So it really is just being explicit about what kind of culture you want and the team wants to have and what, what your expectations are in terms of moving forward. When I was at MetricStream, Every quarter, I'd have a new employee, call it brown bag bunch, right? Everybody bring their lunch. And whether it was in person and some people were on the phone because we were a global company. And I'd spend time talking a little bit about the history of the company, but I'd spend most time talking about the culture, what was important, what I expected. And then when I was done, I said, now you're all culture ambassadors. So when you're out there, if you see people not acting consistent with the culture, let's call people out on it, right? Let's ask them about it because this culture is what we create. I can help to lead it, but it takes us all to be part of it. So coming out of COVID, we need to do the same thing. We have to talk about it, make it explicit, not assumptions. All right. I think we have time for one or two more. Now, you have a, a telecom and Silicon Valley background. Dan Silverberg says right now, a lot of the wealth uh, disparity in the country and, and a lot of the... Um, he sees a big threat coming from Silicon Valley, if you will. And you're seeing it, I suppose, in a lot of the antitrust cases against Facebook and, and Google, et cetera. Uh, what is your view about the current conflict or uh, about what's going on between Washington and Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley and a lot of the other parts of the economy? Well, I'll tell you, if you look back in, in history, we, we constantly have these swings, all right, where you know, heck, if we roll the clock back, IBM was under sanctions and everything else when it was when it was coming through. So we go through times when the government gets very focused and very concerned. Here's what happens. And here's part of the challenge. Technology moves so quickly that it is impossible for laws, regulations, mandates, all that to stay up with it. 
Um, and so as a result, there's always this disconnect. Um, now, at the same time, we need to do a better job. We business, we industry of frankly self-regulating, you know, doing what we should be doing so that we don't need government to come in and actually do it for us. Um, that, you know, that to me is the is the right thing to do. And that's where governance, leadership, boards, the whole bit, they ought to be spending their time. A lot of companies are out there and they talk about these things. It's like, all right, we don't want government to get involved. So let's make sure we're doing the right thing, that we're setting standards. We need more companies thinking like that. Well, thank you for coming here and speaking with us. It's been fantastic. Once again, congratulations on your on your book and your bestseller TV episode. Everyone, please check that out wherever you are. And now we're going to turn it back over to Jeffrey Hazlett, because we have another interview coming up with Tara Walpert-Levy. I think Jeff is out there somewhere. <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. I, I am. I just, uh, you know, like most people, I got it. Where's my mute button? Where's my video button? Hey, Shelly, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. What a great, great insight. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.